0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences joins me and we talk about all the various regulatory pathways that are available via FDA. I know you might be thinking, there's two. There's the 510K and the PMA. And if that's your thought, then frankly, you'd be wrong. There are numerous different options, and we skim the surface and cover uh, all of them. And hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. You know, a lot of these episodes, we talk about trends and what's hot and what's going on in the industry. And all those things are, I think, very, very important to med device professionals. We've also done some episodes in the past where we've talked about different regulatory pathways to get your products to market. And I thought today we could sort of build on that a little bit, but spend a little bit of time kind of talking about numerous medical device pathways to market and giving you some options that you may not have otherwise considered. So we'll talk a little bit about a lot of different pathways, specifically from an FDA perspective. And joining me on the Global Medical Device Podcast is familiar voice and, and good friend Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. So Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. All right. So uh, I I guess maybe a a good first question to kind of start with is, why is it important? Why should we, we be talking about the pathways to market? Why is that a big deal?
1: Well, it's a great question, John. And as always, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this with you in your audience. As you alluded to in your introduction, John, we've discussed a number of these topics before, but we've discussed them in different places at different times. And I thought it would be kind of nice to kind of integrate everything into one discussion covering everything soup to nuts. You said you want to talk about many of the pathways to market for medical devices here in the U.S. I actually want to hit briefly on all of them because okay. as your audience is going to find out there's a lot of options here. And I'll just share with you a quick story, John. Recently, I met some medical device entrepreneurs at a investor conference, and they told me that they were developing their medical device. And I asked them, you know, what their regulatory strategy was. And they said, they're going to do it as a 510K. And I said, well, okay, just out of curiosity, why are you planning on doing it as a 510K? And they said to me, Mike, did we have another option? And so it amazes me how many people are not familiar with all of the options they have. You know, most people are familiar with the 510K, probably the PMA, maybe some people have heard of the de novo, but there's a heck of a lot more to it than that. And one other reason why I thought this was important to talk about, John, is because a lot of people think that in the drug world, bringing a drug onto the market is more complicated than a medical device. And in some ways, that's true, but in other ways, it's really not. In other ways, it's actually much more complicated to bring a medical device onto the market here in the U.S. And the reason is in the drug world, we only have a couple of different options in terms of pathways. There's the NDA, the new drug approval. There's the abbreviated NDA, the ANDA. There's a couple of different options, but really not many options. But John, let me kind of put you on the spot for a moment. Do you know how many major pathways to market, how many major choices that a medical device company has to bring a device to the
0: market here in the U.S.? Damn it, Mike. Why do you always put me on the spot with these tough questions? Um, <laughs> may, all right. So I'm going to key in on the word major. So let me do a kind of a mental count in my head. So five? I'm going to say five.
1: Not a bad guess, John. It's actually a little more than that. There are seven major pathways to bring a medical device onto the market here in the U.S. And under each of those major pathways, as you know, there are a number of sub-pathways. So for example, under the 510K, there's several different, there's the traditional, the abbreviated, the special, now the safety and performance-based 510K. Under the PMA, there's several different sub-pathways and so on. So when you do the arithmetic, John, there's actually more than 20 different pathways to market that a medical device company can choose to bring their particular device to market. And bottom line, I can't make people an expert in all of these different options in just a few minutes in a, in a conversation like this that we're having today. But simply put, unless somebody knows all of their options, and the advantages and disadvantages to each then how can you possibly choose the best pathway for your particular medical device in other words how can you do your job you know my intention here john is not to make our audience an expert in all of these things but at the very least i want to briefly introduce People to all of these different options, so that you can go to your regulatory person in your company, or you can go to your regulatory consultant, and you can say, "Hey, I don't know about a lot about this thing called the de novo, but is that something that we can, uh, you know, consider here for our device? Or I don't know a lot about this humanitarian device exemption, but is that something that we can consider here? If you don't even know that those pathways exist, John, how would you know?" to even ask that question.
0: Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it does. I think the, well, I, w- I wouldn't even say layperson. I, I know plenty of medical device professionals that would have, view, uh, regulatory professionals that would not have known about there being seven major paths and you know 20 plus different variations thereof. I think a lot of times people get very stuck in the, is it a 510K or PMA way of doing things from a regulatory pathway. So yeah. I, I think the knowledge about the different paths and the pros and the cons and, and, and the nuances and, and the advantages and disadvantages, I think that's really important, especially for a, a regulatory professional. You should know all of the, the variations and the options for you and your company.
1: I could not agree with you more, John. People, especially regulatory professionals, should know all of their options. Regrettably, however, uh, that's not always the case.
0: All right, so I, I mentioned or well, we talked a little bit about the why we should be talking about this topic. You know, there's I gotta believe probably that one of the things that's driving or will inform the decision, if you will, of which pathway or pathways are options or could make sense, probably has to do something with what you claim that product does. So, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Absolutely. So before beginning a discussion of which pathways are appropriate to your particular device. We have to consider classification and risk. Now, classification is a completely separate topic. We could easily do a discussion or even a webinar just on that. But classification and risk are, are contingent on two things. They're contingent on the labeling, which is what you just mentioned, the intended use and the indications for use, but they're also contingent on the technology. You cannot separate the labeling and the technology. They go hand in hand when it comes to determining your classification and risk. So the way I like to describe this, John, I like to think about this in the form of what I call a medical device pyramid. And perhaps we can include this with the supplemental information. This is a, a slide that I put together for several of my regulatory presentations. But if you, if you mentally envision a pyramid, at the very bottom of the pyramid, These are the least risky devices. These are what I call the class zero devices. FDA does not use the phrase class zero, but I do. This is where we would find the wellness devices. And you and I have talked about wellness devices in the past, John. For these wellness devices or these class zero devices, they are not regulated by the FDA in any way, shape, or form in other words no 510k or de novo or pma no fda registration no design controls no quality management system no nothing if we had a, a device that fit under the wellness exemption and it was ready to go today we could start selling it here in the united states this afternoon i'm not necessarily advising that we do that but wellness devices are at the bottom of that pyramid and they're they're not regulated by the fda at all one step above Wellness devices are the class one or class two exempt devices. Now, the word exempt, John, uh, causes a lot of confusion to people. In this context, exempt means that we are not required to submit a 510K or de novo or PMA or anything else. It does not mean that you're exempt from all FDA regulation. That would be a wellness device. It simply means that you're exempt from a formal review of your product as I said, a submission of a 510K or something like that, you still need to be FDA registered. You still need to have a quality management system. In most situations, you still need to be following design controls, but you're exempt from a formal submission, a formal review, if you will. One step above that, would be the class 1 and class 2 non-exempt medical devices. So these would be devices that would require either a 510K or a de novo, in addition to the FDA registration and the quality management system and so on and so on. And then finally, at the top, at the apex of the pyramid, this is where we find the class 3 devices, the highest risk devices, where the pathway to market would be either a pre-market approval, a PMA, or an HDE, a humanitarian device exemption. So again, I've tried to describe that sort of verbally. We can include my slide on the website so that people can actually see it. But the most important thing for our audience to remember, John, is When you're choosing your particular pathway, the appropriate pathway, there's never only one option. I've been playing this game now for almost 30 years. I've been involved in, I don't know, I can't even count the number of medical devices over that almost three decades of time. Never in my career have I ever had a device where it only had one option, one pathway to market, you know, or one correct pathway to market. On the contrary... I'll give you a quick example, John. For many medical devices, I can. You, you mentioned uh, you know about the labeling in a moment ago. Let me drill into that a little bit further. For one medical device, I might design my labeling, and when I say design my labeling, I don't mean sort of in a graphical sense. I mean the wordsmithing of the content of the of the claims. I might wordsmith those claims one way so that we can get it onto the market under the wellness exemption, as I said, with no review by the FDA. For exactly the same medical device, I might wordsmith the claims a slightly different way so that I can bring it onto the market as a class one exempt medical device. For exactly the same medical device, I might wordsmith the label claims slightly different a third way and bring it onto the market as a 510K. Once again, for the exact same medical device, I can wordsmith the labeling a fourth way to justify a de novo. And in some, albeit extreme examples, John, for exactly the same medical device, I might wordsmith the labeling a fifth way to bring it onto the market as a class three, as either a a PMA or possibly even an HDE. So this is what I meant a moment ago John when I said you can't you can't only look at the technology or the labeling so many people think that that classification is just based on the risk of your technology that's only part of the answer what's equally as important is the labeling.
0: I hope that makes uh, some degree of sense, John. Yeah, no, it does, for sure. I, I mean, it's very important to kind of understand the pyramid and folks will get this image in to the text that accompanies the podcast, at least on the Greenlight site, so that way you can have a nice visual representation. Mike, a moment ago, I, I sort of, I think I hinted at maybe the, the more common path uh, ways to the market that it seems like most people here who are trying to get products to the, to the market in the U.S. anyway are, are familiar with. And, and I guess the two workhorses, so to speak, are the 510K and MPMA. You know, there's you talked about there being a handful of others. So maybe uh, elaborate on some of those other paths as well. And uh, I guess where we can or where it makes sense within reason, you know, maybe go into some pros and cons or tips and pointers on on the, the variants. And I, and you described it pretty well with the, the pyramid structure, but maybe elaborate on that a little bit further.
1: Sure. Happy to do so, John. As you just pointed out, the two most common pathways, please notice I'm not saying the best pathways by any means, but the two most common by sheer number are, of course, the 510K and the PMA. And I'm sure many in our audience uh, are fairly familiar with those. And you and I have talked about both in some detail, so I don't want to spend a lot of time going into those, but there are a number of other options. For example, and I'll just tick them off and then we can talk about them the de novo, which is sort of an alternative to the 510K. Both the 510K as well as the de novo are appropriate for. Class 2 devices or Class 1 non-exempt devices. The principal difference between the two being that a 510K relies on a predicate device. In other words, we have to identify another device that's already on the market that's substantially equivalent, or in other words, basically the same as our new device, both in terms of labeling as well as technology. So if your device is less than Class 3 and you can identify a suitable predicate, then the 510K may be a plausible option for you. On the other hand, if your device is less than Class 3, but there is no suitable predicate, then you might more consider the de novo because the de novo, unlike the 510K, is really intended for new or novel devices, devices where there is not a suitable predicate. And not to drill into the weeds too much here, John, but the question of whether or not there's a suitable predicate is not a simple question. There are always potential predicates. I don't care how new or innovative or novel you think your device is. There are always potential predicates. The question is, can you go to the FDA and sell them on the fact that this other device over here is a predicate for ours? So if you think you can sell them, on your predicate strategy, then you might consider the 510K. On the other hand, if you think that it's going to be difficult to sell them on your predicate strategy, then you might consider the de novo. So the de novo is one option. Another option is the product development protocol or PDP. This is a very, very uncommon pathway to market, but I love to use the less common pathways to market, John, especially when there's not a lot of guidance or regulation on it. Unlike a lot of my regulatory colleagues, because if there 's not a lot of guidance on it, it gives me the opportunity to to do what I think is best, and i don 't have to conform to you know a lot of regulation. so the PDP is for class three devices, so once again we 're sort of at the top of the the medical device pyramid it 's kind of like the PMA. As a matter of fact, FDA categorizes the PDP as a subtype of the PMA. I do not, but that's a matter of semantics. Basically, it's what what you do is you walk into the FDA and you essentially present them your plan. And if FDA agrees on your plan, then you proceed. The manufacturer proceeds at their own, at their own pace. And when you've completed everything that you say you have will complete, then FDA essentially approves your device as a a class three device. So this product development protocol, as I said, is extraordinarily uncommonly used. But in the spirit of medical device professionals, especially regulatory professionals, knowing all their options, if they're a regulatory professional and they don't know what the PDP is, then in my book, John, they're not a regulatory professional. A couple of other pathway options to be aware of, the humanitarian device exemption or the HDE. This is also at the top of the medical device pyramid. This is for class three devices. This is the medical device equivalent of the orphan drug program. So if your medical device is class three, you can kind of think about it as an alternative if you will to the five I'm sorry to the PMA. There are a couple of requirements that we have to meet in order to qualify for the HDE. One of them is that we can only sell or treat 8,000 or less patients per year. However, John, we have to remember that we can add those numbers up in many, many different ways. I actually brought a device onto the market under the HDE for diabetes most people would say, well, how the heck could you do that as an HDE? Because clearly more than 8,000 people per year have diabetes. Well, the way we were able to do it in a nutshell was to, with, with the labeling, as you asked about earlier, John, to restrict the indication, you know, narrow the indication such that we only ticked off or only added up you know, 8,000 patients. Similarly, you know, with a heart valve that was brought onto the market a few years ago, we narrowed the patient population until we checked that magic number. My favorite thing about the HDE, though, it's one of my favorite pathways to use to bring medical devices onto the market when I can. As you know, John, as we talked about before, most medical devices We are required to show that the device is safe and effective in order to bring it onto the market. But please notice, John, I'm parsing my words carefully. I'm saying most, not all. There are exceptions, and the HDE is an exception. In the HDE, there's no efficacy requirement. Instead, it's what we call probable benefit. Now, I don't have time to go into a detailed discussion of probable benefit, but in essence, John, what probable benefit is, is efficacy at a very, in a much lower statistical power. In other words, efficacy with far fewer patients. And the reason why it's one of my favorite pathways to bring devices onto the market in the class three universe is because simply put, it's easier. It has a lower regulatory burden to do it than to do it as a as a PMA. And because of that, it offers a wonderful opportunity to do a label expansion, which I've done many times in the HDE world. I've, I mentioned this a moment ago. We bring a class three device onto the market first as an HDE with a narrow indication to tick off the, the 8,000 number. And then we go back to the FDA a little bit further down the road and do a label expansion for a much larger po- patient population using a PMA. So we can kind of string together these different pathway options in many different possible combinations. So thus far, John, just to recap, we've talked about the five ten K, the PMA, we've talked a little bit about the de novo and the HDE. Before I finish our discussion and talk about the last few, any comments or, or questions about any of those?
0: No, I think you know the the product development protocol. I mean, I you don't hear about that ever, or hardly ever, anyway. You know, HDE, CD, those are a little more common, but um, no. Let's let's uh, continue on a little bit.
1: Okay, fair enough. And by the way, one important thing that I probably should mention about the PDP: the essence of the PDP relies on what FDA calls well-established technology. In other words, in order to consider the PDP, you have to show that your device uses well-established technology. That's what the regulation says. Well, believe it or not, John, I've had come to people come to me and say, hey, we're considering the PDP. The regulation says it has to be well-established technology, but the regulation does not say what well-established means. So what is well-established? And I like to re- reply to them, well, gee, did you go to junior high school? I mean, what does <laughs> well-established to me well established means that the technology has been around for a long time, that the technology has uh, you know a long history of use of safety, efficacy, of risk, that there are a number of different devices, maybe from several different companies that uh, use the same or similar technology, in other words. We don't need regulation to micromanage us, John. If we have regulation that starts to define things like what well-established means, we're going to have even more regulation than what we have today. So we have to go to the FDA and we have to say, okay, we're going to bring this product onto the market as a PDP. The regulation says it needs to be well-established. Here are all the reasons why our technology is well-established. That's the way I play this game, John. I'm not sure that everybody else does.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm reminded of uh, some Mike Drew's isms, uh, Lee, don't follow, tell, don't ask. right? There you go.
1: There you go. <laughs> I'm glad at least one person out there is listening. Okay, let's continue on just to complete the list because, you know, my intention here is to at least briefly cover all of the different pathways to market options. So the next one, and I think you mentioned this briefly a moment ago, is the custom device exemption, or CDE. This is the least commonly used pathway to market. In the past, it's been used for things like dental appliances, prescription eyeglasses, some prosthetic limbs, and so on. But I've said in some of my columns, John, as many as uh, almost 10 years ago, that I think the CDE has the potential to go from the least popular pathway to market to the most popular pathway to market. In other words, I see the potential for the CDE to become as popular, maybe even more popular, as the 510K. Now, most people say to me, oh, my God, this Drew's guy must be wackadoodle. He must be nuts. How can he possibly think that the CDE is going to be as popular as the 510K. Well, John, can you think of a reason why, for example, a technology why I think the the CDE has the possibility to become that popular?
0: Well, I mean, one thought that comes to top of mind is there seems to be a growing interest in in real-world evidence about a product. I don't know if that's where you were leading me to, but that was sort of what came to top of mind for me.
1: Well, it's a great guess, John. Unfortunately, it's not correct. But kudos to you for getting up to the plate and swinging the bat, because I have a lot more respect for somebody that gets up to the plate and swings the bat, even if they miss, than somebody that never gets up to the plate and swings at all. So great guess, but real-world evidence is not where I'm going here. Where I was going here was personalized medicine, including 3D printing. In my professional opinion, And remember, as as some in your audience knows, John, I I work not only as a regulatory consultant for companies, but I also work as a consultant for the FDA. So I see a lot of these issues you know, from both sides. But in my professional opinion, the CDE is the most appropriate pathway to market for personalized devices like 3D printed devices. In spite of the fact that a few years ago, when FDA put out their 3D printing guidance, They specifically said that the CDE should not be used for 3D printed or personalized devices. I strongly disagree. The CDE is not the perfect pathway, but it's the closest pathway. I think we need a new pathway for personalized medicine, including 3D printed. But of the pathway options that we have today, I think the CDE is the most appropriate. now. In the interest of full disclosure, as you probably know, John, we have more than a hundred devices that are on the market here in the US that have gone through the FDA that are 3D printed. I've been involved with many of them, certainly not all of them. And I've mostly used the 510K when sometimes the de novo or the PMA to get these 3D-printed devices on the market for reasons I won't get into here. I've never actually used the CDE, but I do think the CDE is the most appropriate pathway. So that's
0: another... Oh, yeah. uh, well, I mean, it's interesting. I was just having um, a conversation in, internal about somebody was asking me where is is the medical device world going which is you know a a fun speculative somewhat loaded question to to try to address and my response was personalized medicine i mean we're seeing you know the convergence of devices your traditional medical devices and you know some of the wellness products that are starting to bleed into and and be considered as medical devices I think that's that's an area where you know, an AI is certainly and machine learning are certainly um, I'll say subjects of interest in that space but there again I think you know, we've been seeing now for a while sort of blending of traditional medical device and pharmaceuticals and, and biotech. And then you mentioned 3D printing. You know, I've been talking to a company recently that's that's working on a dental device that is going to be 3D printed and things, and and it's going to be patient-specific. So my response, short answer to that question, my response was, um, where I see the the industry moving is more and more towards personalized medicine, and not just in device, but across all life science segments.
1: I could not agree with you more, John, both on the device side as well as on the drug side. The notion of making millions and millions of the same pill and giving it to you know, lots and lots of people, or making millions and millions of the same device and giving it to lots of people, with all due respect, that is such antiquated thinking, and that is clearly not the future. So I could not agree with you more. Just to kind of finish our discussion, there's one last pathway to market that we need to at least mention briefly to complete our exhaustive list of all pathway to market options. The last one is the emergency use or compassionate use program. And this is another one of these very uncommonly used pathways to market, but it's important for our audience to have a complete understanding of all of their options. So in a nutshell, the EAP allows us to use an investigational product, a device or a drug or whatever it is, that's not yet approved or cleared by the FDA outside of a clinical trial. So we're not in a clinical trial specifically for high-risk kind of applications, like, for example, class three devices, especially when there's no suitable animal model that's available. In other words, no other good way to test this. Now, as you can imagine, John, Clearly, there are ethical considerations here. You know, when you're brutally honest in situations like this, let's be clear, we are to a certain extent treating people like guinea pigs, but it's an appropriate option to consider to get early feasibility data on a high-risk device, especially, as I said, when you don't have any other way to do it when a suitable animal model is not available. And from a regulatory perspective, John, I love to use this because just like the HTE, this is a wonderful opportunity for a label expansion. In other words, we can use the data that we collect under the EAP to support an HTE or a PMA submission later on to go after a, a broader market. So, the EAP, you know, it's, it can only be used legitimately in certain situations. But once again, if you're not aware of all of your different options, then, and the advantages and disadvantages of each, then how can you possibly know? which one to use or not use. In other words, how can you do your job? And further, John, how can you string them together? How can you you know, go from an HDE to a PMA label expansion? Or how can you design your device labeling in one way as a 510K and then a second way as a de novo and a third way as a PMA? If you don't know all your options, how can you do that?
0: I think you said something there that I, I think is really, really key. I think a lot of times we get kind of caught up in a singular pathway mindset, so to speak, where we're like, oh, it's 510K, or oh, it's PMA, or oh, it's this. But to your point, I mean, you can string these things together. I mean, it can, it's can it got to be part of the overall uh, strategy. Maybe uh, there is a path that says, all right, we're, we have uh, an EAP indication that we can pursue. Allow us to get our product into you know the market for these emergency situations, compassionate use situations. But then you know, sometime later, we're going to follow on with you know a PDP approach, or or even later, maybe a five ten k, or any combination thereof. So I think it's really important for folks to realize it's not just a, a one and done sort of approach. There are all sorts of nuances and, and opportunities to explore and, and different paths, and you, you may com- combine or string all of these things together in an overall global regulatory strategy, so really good point. Once,
1: once again, John, I could not agree with you more, and you know, there's an almost infinite number of possible combinations that you can, to use your phrase, string these things together, and it's not an either-or situation either. Now that we've ticked through all of the major options, I would just like to uh, to share one quick example. I have a litany of examples, but for the sake of time, I'll just show I'll just uh, share one. One question that sometimes people ask me is, "Must I choose only a single pathway?" I, in other words, m- is it either a five ten k or a PMA? And the answer is absolutely not. One of the devices I helped bring to the uh, market a few years ago, we brought a device onto the market for one indication in one part of the body is a PMA, and then we brought exactly the same device onto the market for exactly the same indication, but for a different part of the body, a different anatomical location, as a 510K. I don't have time to get into the details of that, John, but this is what I call an anatomical or an anatomy-specific regulatory pathway. As far as I know, John, that was the first time And I I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. That was the first time that that was ever done. As you know, there are lots of examples where devices that are on the market is a 510K for one indication and a PMA for a different indication. But this is the only time that I know of where I had a 510K and a PMA for the same indication, but one was used in one part of the body with a higher risk. The other was used in a different part of the body with a lower risk. What do you think of that strategy, John?
0: Well, I mean, I just think it's being smart, you know, frankly, because, well, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why that makes a lot of sense. I mean, one possible outcome that jumps to the top of my mind is, you know, if I might be able to get a 510K cleared a little bit faster, if you will, maybe. And again, I know there's exceptions and twists and turns and all sorts of of devils in the details, so to speak, but but I can probably... Chances are, I get it through the five ten k pathway a little bit sooner than a PMA, and then allows me to. to well, I'm going to be able to help patients for those those indications for use for that part of the body, build some evidence and some traction, if you will, and you know maybe also generate some revenue to help me fund additional exploration for the PMA indication. So there's you know all sorts of things that that would help me do as a business for solvency, stability, growth, and that sort of thing.
1: Well, you know, for the third time today, John, I could not agree with oh more. And, and, and so there's a, a, record. A, a lot of different ways so that, that that we can put these things together. All right. So just to wrap this up, we we've, we've talked about all of the different major pathways to market. And by the way, John, not to make things more complicated, but the, what I said at the beginning of our discussion, uh, there are seven major pathways. That is factually correct, but what is not considered in that list of seven that we've talked about is the wellness device exemption. Whether we call the wellness device exemption a pathway to market or not, I'm not sure. It's kind of semantics, but for completeness, maybe I should revise that statement and say there are actually eight different pathways, major pathways to market, which would include the wellness exemption. So bottom line, like I said at the beginning, we have a litany of different options. We have subtypes under many of these categories, which we did not even discuss today, but a heck of a lot more possibilities than exist in the drug world. So maybe medical devices are not, in fact, as simple, you know, simpler than drugs. Maybe in some ways, they're more complicated. The very last thing that I wanted to mention, John, before we wrap this up and, you know, maybe have some other questions. There's two other options that I want people to be aware of, both of which that we've spoken about in different podcasts, but they are not pathways to market. One is the Breakthrough Devices Program, or BDP, and then the second is the newer STEP program, the Safer Technologies Program. The reason why I wanted to mention these, John, and again, for our audience, you know, we've talked about both of these in detail in different discussions. These are not pathways to market. In other words, I frequently get the question from my customers, John can I do the BDP instead of a 510K or de novo or something else? And the answer is absolutely not. The BDP and the STEP program are intended to allow devices to go through the FDA in a more efficient manner, not necessarily faster. A lot of people think that it's a faster time to market. In my experience, John, that's not always the case. You still need to have a 510 k clearance or a granted de novo or a PMA approval, even if you are in one of these programs. And the other thing that I want our audience to understand about these programs, John, is that these are not shortcuts. In other words, These are not, you know, it's not like you have to do less work, less testing if you have a BDP device as opposed to a non-BDP device. The amount of testing that you have to do is exactly the same regardless of if it's BDP or STEP or not. The difference is, as I said, you go through the FDA process in a more efficient, not necessarily a faster, but a more efficient way. And on a personal note, I might add, John, that the STEP program is still New. The BDP program has been around now for a couple of years. In my opinion, I think FDA is now starting to overuse the BDP program. In other words, quite frankly, I look at some of the BDPs that have been, some of the medical devices that have been granted BDP status, and I scratch my head and I say, why the heck did this get BDP status? So I'm a little fearful, you know, it's kind of the boy who cried wolf, John. If we award these, BDP designations or these step designations too mm, liberally, then you know, nobody's, they're, they're going to lose their benefits. Nobody's going to really pay attention anymore. I do think that the criteria needs to be upheld. But that's just my personal opinion, John. Some people might disagree with me. So I just wanted to, to mention those two things because no, I think there's good. a lot of confusion when it comes to, to pathways to market and are those pathways to market.
0: No, it's a good thing to mention because I, I hear the same thing. It, like, they, there's an assumption that BDP is the pathway. So, yeah, it's good to chime in on that. So, Mike, this is a, a ton of information. And to your point uh, earlier in the conversation, there's probably some of these we can split off and, and do separate podcasts and other content and things along regulatory pathways. So, you know, folks, uh, stay tuned, and we'll be diving into to some of these here in future episodes on the Global Medical Device Podcast. As always, I want to thank Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and the time, effort, and energy that that he commits to what we're doing here at Greenlight, as well as just trying to help move the ball forward in a good direction for the medical device industry. I can tell you for certain that that no one cares about improving the quality of life in the medical device industry more than Mike Drew's. So folks, if you need a little bit of help with your regulatory pathway and understanding the nuances and the options of of all the different options before you, then then you need to contact Mike Drew's. He's here to help. Folks, one last thing before we wrap up today's episode. Remember, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help too. We also care a great deal about improving the quality of life, about helping you get products to the market to help patients with whatever issues are ailing them. And we also want to help you as the medical device professional with purpose-built solutions for the medical device industry. So go check out the Greenlight Guru EQMS. Learn more about how our platform is being used in companies all over the globe and really making a difference in the industry. So go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. As always, thank you so much for being a listener of the Global Medical Device Podcast. If this is your first episode, there's well over 100 more episodes for you to check out. So be sure to do that and and share that with your friends and colleagues. Thank you again. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.